Welcome everybody to the July 24th session of Chat with the Designers, your live, online, interactive, weekly magazine for homebrewers, QRPers, and ham radio ops on a worldwide basis across the fruited plains. This is your host, George N2APB, with co-host Joe N2CX. And uh, tonight's session uh, is going to be a really exciting one, we think. Something of of uh, it's going to be very helpful to all the homebrewers and experimenters that listen in uh, to the chat with the designers uh, uh, on a week-to-week basis. This, by the way, is, I think, uh, episode number 32. So we're really kind of chalking up uh, the material here. We have a great website, Chat with the Designers on uh, Yahoo Groups. And uh, all of our episodes from previous weeks are recorded there. Um, podcasts are posted and the whiteboard material is there. So if this is the first time that you've joined us, either live or via the podcast, we really welcome you and we urge you to kind of look back over all the old material. This is some really good uh, and we think kind of interesting material for uh, uh, for us homebrewers and experimenters. As we always say that uh, this is what Joe and I enjoy doing most and that's why we like to do this on a weekly basis is to kind of share what we do is is uh, chatting and learning about different components, different equipment, different techniques, new parts, new things, and so on. So uh, that's what we're going to be doing here today, actually. Um, what we're going to be talking about today is, uh, well, the topic, of course, is guide to component selection. Now, on the surface, this sounds like kind of a... Um, uh, a moderately okay type of a presentation, but when you hear what we're going to be doing, I think you're going to be quite interested because I don't know about you, but I don't think that I've ever gone to a magazine article and, and I see tons of projects on them all the time and note that I have every single part right there. And, and sometimes even if I have to go um, order the parts online in as much as my homebrewing box, my junk box is pretty deep, even though uh, I have a lot of parts here. There's uh, there's occasion where I have to go try to buy some. Sometimes I can't get them. Either they're out of stock or I need, it, I need the part uh, sooner than I can obtain it. So I need to substitute a part or two or knock off uh, an amplification stage because it's going to go into something else that's uh, equally um, uh, going to do the job for me, but it's not quite the project that's listed on the um, in the project uh, schematic and parts list. So I scrounge around and I try to find parts that'll work. If it's a different transistor, things that go through my mind, does it have the same gain? Well, first of all, of course, it's got to be the same type of transistor. If it's a bipolar, it's either got to be a PNP or an NPN. So I got to make sure that I get the right kind, the right gain, the right current capability, and uh, sometimes, you have to watch this too sometimes, the right manufacturer. Because there are vendor-to-vendor types of uh, differences in these things. Now, resistors are pretty mundane. Everybody knows what a resistor is and how to use it. Most of us, I hope, can calculate the power through a, uh, a resistor. Uh, but sometimes, the network that the circuit is in is a little bit unusual. And um, sometimes, it's a little hard to see what power requirements are necessary. For example, if you have, uh, if you're pumping two or five watts into a pi attenuator, a pi attenuator pad, um, it's not clear, at least in the outset, which of the resistors need to handle the most power. 
So tonight what we're going to do is we're going to kind of present some basics of, of uh, components. Um, most of most, most uh, first off is going to be, uh, we're going to talk about capacitors. They're, they're of really great interest um, because of the variety and the um, sometimes the mystique of capacitor selection. Should I use a polyester capacitor or a, um, an electrolyt a tantalum, a tantalum or a straight electrolytic? Um, what about a monolithic cap versus a disc cap? So all of these questions um, I think we're going to be touching on today, and I hope that you'll be able to maybe ask some questions that are on your mind as we go through the material. We're going to get into transistors and semiconductors and toroids. Um, we're going to get into a couple of circuits that are going to allow us to kind of branch out and talk about other components that are, are commonly used in, uh, in circuits. So we're going to try to pick apart a sample oscillator and again uh, a sample pi attenuator and see what kind of uh, considerations one might make to have if you're trying to find or scrounge these parts out of your, out of your box. Will an eighth watt resistor work in a pi attenuator that's uh, designed to be uh, handled in one watt? Well, maybe the answer is yes. But maybe no. Depends on where the resistor is in the uh, in that uh, attenuator. But we'll see. So, uh, Joe, do you want to just maybe help set the stage, and then I'd like to say a word about the uh, reference books before we get started. Uh, go ahead. Okay, certainly. I have the uh, benefit of having uh, having been a ham for a oh lord quite a few years now. Um, I guess. Um, I guess now I'm I'm up to double uh, QCWA status, 50 years. So um, I've had a lot of experience over the years with uh, uh, learning about components, uh, trying to uh, apply components. But as George said, a lot of times trying to apply either what I have or what I can get uh, uh, readily readily available, and it's always a challenge to. Uh, to try to tailor exactly what you have to uh, to the task you want. There's a lot of skill, um, a lot of experience it takes to do that. So we're going to try to give you some, um, some background information, cover some highlights of what's important, what, what sorts of things you have to take into consideration <clears throat> in doing uh, exactly this. And um, we do have some reference uh, material on the whiteboard to um, to guide us through it, and uh, in uh, several different areas, some things that are widely available on the on the web. And George is going to talk about some stuff that's uh, you've got to purchase to get. And um, uh, of particular interest to me is analyzing the several circuits we have at the end of the uh, talk, where we can go through um, section by section the circuit and describe each component in there and the different characteristics that are required of them. Uh, so you get a feel for uh, what it takes to uh, to learn how to apply uh, what's what. So I think George wants to begin with a couple of very good references, which are at the beginning of the whiteboard. Back to you, George. Yeah, thank you, Joe. Top of the whiteboard is a photograph of two books. And as I say there in the, uh, in the caption, um, if you purchase just one book in your homebrewing lifetime, it should be one of these two particular books, and they are fabulous, each of them. The first is the 
Data Book for Homebrewers and QRPers by Paul Harden, NA5N. And this has been around for a long time. In fact, I might even have the, uh, the older book. I think he might have redone it. And Paul has been around for many, many years, just about as long as Joe has. And certainly here in the QRP world, he's a technologist and experimenter or, and designer of great fame in our ranks, if you haven't heard of him. He's been a little quiet lately, but he and his lovely wife run the QTTF, the QRP to the Field event every year, which I think just happened uh, last month or, or so. But um, Paul publishes this book, and for some reason we're just not able to get a hold of him recently to see for the availability of them, but I'm sure that uh, we'll have information about it shortly again. His book, and the one next to it, Electronics Bench Reference, It's his name is Dick Torme, and I can't, we'll find out his call sign, but Dick publishes this Electronics Bench Reference book, and both, uh, just like uh, the homebrew, they're a little bit different uh, approaches and styles. I have both of them, obviously. I posted the photos. Um, but uh, they are absolute must-haves. If you haven't seen them or heard of them, you must get your hands on them, and we can supply more details. And in fact, working up a deal here with uh, Dick and uh, with um, uh, Bill and 8 et that we're going to be able to get a bunch of these things for Q, um, for um, Chat with the Designers uh, listeners here tonight. And we know who you are, of course, and you'll have an opportunity to maybe get the Electronics Bench Reference book at a slight discount if you're interested. So we'll talk about that later on. But I'll tell you, this, these books provide excellent references for the kind of parts that we use on a regular basis on the bench, from transistors to toroids to number of turns on a toroids to capacitor types, selection, sample circuits, you name it, and everything. And I say everything is applicable to the kind of work that we do here in uh, the HAM radio uh, homebrewing world. So, enough said of those. In fact, we pulled a couple of references or a couple of diagrams from uh, um, from Paul's book, and I'll augment two with, uh, from Dick's book now that we have um, approval to, to get it, uh, to use some of the material on here. And you will be just astounded, I think. So, why don't we just get into things, and um, I'm going to turn it over to Joe in a second. We're going to talk first about capacitors. I think this is my own personal mystery of life, and, and or at least it has been in, in the past. I think I'm with Joe's able assistance over the years, I've been able to get a better handle on capacitors. Which ones to use in RF? Which ones are okay for audio? Which type to use for the kind of signal process, for the kind of signal handling or, or filtering uh, purposes? And uh, there's a surprising number of, uh, of capacitors. Um, but maybe not so when you consider the different kinds of applications that we hams have in the RF and audio frequency world. So getting your hands around the capacitor types and very simply too, some of the numbering um, for part values will be extremely aiding, um, be of extreme assistance to you in your projects and building them up and measuring them and, and getting them all to work. So um, Joe, do you want to kind of lead us into the the capacitor world, and I think I still have some mystery left. So please excuse some in advance some of the kind of like the basic questions that I might pump over to you because they might have uh, um, they might have be relevant in your mind as well, Joe. Okay, well, thank you, George. Oh well, we're all learning all the time. Uh, believe me, nobody knows everything about these components. 
uh, it gained a certain amount of familiarity having uh, played with them, but uh, you can always learn something new, and, and uh, particularly the surface mount components coming around <clears throat> in great profusion now. There's even more uh, nuances to uh, even capacitors. Um, first thing on the whiteboard shows um, a standard capacitor value table. Um, and the listing here goes from one picofarad to 68 microfarads. <clears throat> if you look carefully, you notice the progression here. Um, the uh, Starting with the lower values, we have one picofarad, 1.2 picofarad, 1.5, 1.8, 2.2, etc. And then uh, up to the top value is 6.8. Um, generally speaking, it would normally go up to 8.2. I'm not sure why that's not in the table. But this is the EIA standard values, which are 10% values. If you notice the, the difference between each step, for example, between 1 picofarad and 1.2 picofarad, that's about a 20% jump. So a 10% tolerance component, 1 picofarad, at the high end of its tolerance range, would overlap with a 10% uh, um, 1.2 picofarad at its lower uh, tolerance range of about 10%. This is very standard for both capacitors and resistors so that uh, you have a feel for uh, you know, what values you can get. Now, there are other granularities. There are 5% values, which are in between. And these days, even 1% uh, values are, uh, are available at higher cost. Uh, question? Yeah, just a parenthetical insert here, Joe, is that, uh, and maybe it's a tip for everybody, if you haven't yet done it, the table of all the component values comes to mind. I mean, you know, when you're going to, you need a capacitor, a 0.01 microfarad disk cap or whatever, and you go to Mauser, if you can, if you don't have the right kind, you go to Mauser or DigiKey and you, you go to get the part. Um, not only buy more than what you need, like, you know, buy, probably buy 10 at least, but maybe buy 50. They're, they're that inexpensive. But more importantly, if you're going to Mauser and you have a few minutes and, and a few extra bucks, you can save yourself a whole bunch of um, hassle later on. You know, order 10 of each part. You'll be amazed how inexpensive that's going to be, or maybe every other part that you see in the table there. You'll end up with um, a bunch of plastic bags with the component values on them right from Mauser, and you'll have yourself a nicely augmented um, junk box that you can pull from during experimentation and new project buildup. You can do the same thing for resistors. We've mentioned this before, but it's worthy of uh, mentioning again. Of course, get the 10% uh, get the 10 spaced uh, parts of resistors, capacitors, um, same too as some of the diodes and transistors that we're talking about here. Never go buy one or just five of any one kind. Get maybe five or ten that are uh, that you're able to augment your junk box with, and I think you might be a whole bit better off. Chris, do you have a question? Chris W A zero or W zero A and M. Your mic is on. Ah, uh, great. <laughs> Let me try and mute it out. It's not going to work. Shoot. Pull your mic. There you go. <laughs> Just pull the plug. Unless you're using a built-in mic. Mike, or Chris, could you drop offline, please, until you get this right now? Yes, I can.
<laughs> Poor Chris. Sorry about that, uh, uh, folks. Okay, so um, was there another question along the way? Um, yeah, John, hey, yeah, go ahead, John. Oh, good evening. Um, I'm on my iPad tonight, and I can't seem to find the whiteboard. Okay. Um, and you might not have access to, you might not see the text messages that we can send back and forth. If you go to the home page for the um, uh, chat with the designers, can you get there? That's, of course, going to list the, have the link for where we are. Another way that you can go to it is go to the homepage of the New Jersey QRP Club. And the top item on there is a link to our homepage, and that'll bring you to our page. Um, I could I could say the, the URL to type in, but it would be too long and error prone. Um, but uh, try one of those two methods. Um, or send me an email, if you can, and I'll respond to it with, the, with a link. My email, of course, is n2apb at verizon.net. Alrighty. Um, Joe, that was a long parenthetical input. I'm sorry, but uh, go ahead, please. Yeah, that was a, that was a worthwhile digression. All right. Yeah, uh, George had a, an excellent point. And in fact, uh, I've just recently gone through that uh, process of getting some surface mount components in the various values so that uh, so I have a stock of them. All right. Anyway, the different types of uh, capacitors, uh, basically, are different dielectric materials. Capacitor is basically um, two metallic plates with some sort of dielectric material between them. And the uh, dielectric material um, has the property of uh, increasing the capacitance between the two plates um, and also introducing other, other strange and wondrous things. But Basically, uh, the different materials give you uh, different levels of capacitance and um, different values of uh, uh, loss. And it's always a trade-off between those two things. Um, one of the first types of capacitors used by hams, used in RF, has a silver mica uh, construction. It's basically mica sheets with silver deposited on, on the uh, faces of it and uh, somehow connected to uh, leads. Very good for RF, very low loss, like as a low loss uh, conductor. They can be a little fragile, uh, although if they're encapsulated properly, they're not. And in addition to having low loss, they're very temperature stable, um, but they're restricted to rather low values, unfortunately. Uh, is there a question? Just wanted to say that they're all also a little bit expensive, too. Isn't that right? Why, why is that? They're ungodly expensive these days. Not sure why. I guess they've kind of gone out of favor. Another type of, uh, and George is exactly right, they're very expensive, if you can find them. And they're, uh, um, they are available, but uh, not as common as they used to be. Another type of uh, capacitance, uh, uh, dielectric in capacitors, is polyester film. Plastic film, which um, is used with a metal foil, generally an aluminum type foil, and rolled up in a roll. Um, they have um, they have higher capacitance than um, the mica capacitors uh, in the same volume because the uh, polyester film has a higher dielectric. They tend to also have the high voltage. You can make high voltage ratings with them because you can use thicker plastic. 
Uh, downsides are that uh, that rolled construction gives you a lot of inductance so that uh, they're of somewhat less um, use at RF than the silver mica. And uh, they also tend to be a, a little more lossy than the silver mica. And uh, unfortunately, um, having the thicker film there, the plastic film, it changes its, its characteristics with temperature. So um, they can be, uh, unfortunately, uh, not as stable with temperature as the, uh, the mica. Uh, another type of film capacitor is polycarbonate film, which is a different type of plastic. Polycarbonate is pretty good. Uh, they are very low dissipation. They have a very low loss. But again, if they're rolled capacitors, um, they tend to be uh, poor for RF and um, they're expensive to manufacture. So uh, they tend to be expensive and not yet much used by uh, hobbyists. Uh, comment, question? Yeah. Um... Frankly, I still get it mixed up. Which are the applications that these caps are best used in? Um, and I get my P's mixed up. So can you mention which uh, is the favorite and most popular, most efficient, most common use of the capacitors, RF, uh, audio, high cap, low cap? You've mentioned those. Okay, certainly. Yeah, the um, ones, the uh, silver mic at is used primarily for RF because it has low loss and uh, and it's relatively stable. The, the In general, the plastic dielectric capacitors, and I won't even mention the uh, polypropylene, but the plastic capacitors have higher capacitance values, but unfortunately they have uh, higher loss than the mica. And uh, also because of their construction, they have high uh, uh, series inductance. So they tend to be used at audio frequencies, be used for bypasses and um, for audio coupling, and to some extent for audio filters. Um, going to another type of dielectric, uh, monolithic ceramic capacitors. And um, there are a whole series of uh, ceramic dielectric capacitors. We have shown here is a, uh, a rectangular one. There are also chip types these days, of course, without leads. And there are the older disc ceramics. There are probably 10 or 12 different kinds of at least types of uh, ceramic passers. Um, the one that we use for RF is called an NP0. Uh, the NP is negative positive zero, which means it has a nominal zero temperature coefficient. It doesn't uh, vary um, almost at all with, uh, with temperature. Um, there is a slight variation, but it's very small. They also tend to be very low, low loss at RF, so they're very good for that. Other things, um, you'll see there's an XZ, X7Z and an N5U and a Y5U, which are other, what they call higher K dielectric capacitors, which are, um, they give you higher capacitance in the same volume, but unfortunately they have higher loss at RF and they also have very high temperature coefficients. They might change uh, over a 10 degree C range, they might change 10% in capacitance. So if you, if you have a filter with them in there, uh, they'd be very lossy and uh, it would detune very badly with the temperature. So you would try to go with the uh, NP zeros if you possibly could. Another disadvantage of the high K dielectrics 
people have found with, uh, particularly with um, regen and um, direct conversion receivers, they tend to have a piezoelectric characteristic, which means if they're tapped, just the um, physical motion of the capacitor, having them tapped, generates a tiny little, little voltage. So that'll be, uh, unfortunately, it'll it'll be present if you have a high gain audio amplifier, you'll hear a tapping sound. So the, the non-NP0 ceramic capacitors are generally used for um, coupling capacitors and for bypass capacitors where the, uh, the loss is not quite so, uh, so much of a problem. Uh, another type of capacitor very common is the electrolytic capacitor, which has a, um, a, a, an oxide film formed between aluminum foil plates. They're much higher capacitance in the same volume. Um, and they're, they're good for um, audio and DC applications, filter capacitors, but uh, because of the, um, the, uh, the way they're built, the rolled up uh, um, metal film, they tend to have high impedance, high inductance, and they're not very good at RF. They are good for audio decoupling and audio uh, bypass. Um, another type of, of ceramic capacitor is a disc ceramic, has similar characteristics to the other, uh, other ones I mentioned the other uh, the monolithic ceramics. Finally is uh, tantalum capacitors, which um, I like an electrolytic, but they're a solid, um, solid structure of metal, um, oxidized tantalum between, uh, uh, between plates in there. They are uh, high capacitance, um, reasonably poor temperature coefficient, they drift, but they are very good for uh, coupling capacitors and for bypass capacitors. And uh, they have low loss up into RF when they're used for bypass capacitors. But uh, they're too lossy for uh, tuning and, um, and they have a little more loss than uh, the MP0. I'm gonna break at this point for uh, questions. I see George is clicking his mic. He's chomping at the bit. Guys. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Nick, you first. All right, I, I hope my audio is coming through. Uh, my qu question is, is back to the silver mica. Now, me being a sort of, sort of an old guy that's new, uh, I used to strip the daylights out of, out of radios, and I still do. Silver micas were so precious because they were so expensive to me as a kid. They were the first things out of a radio next to the vacuum tubes. And uh, uh, to this day, I still have quite a few silver micas. Oh, I'll say I have quite a few, maybe on the order of uh, 20 to, to 50 of them. But what are, can we use today uh, when those supplies are depleted or we just have to use something else? Over? Yeah, that's always a problem. I've got the same thing. and I have a pile of silver micas, both the, uh, the posted stamp and the, uh, the orange drop types. Generally, what it's used these days is NP0 uh, ceramic capacitors. And um, there are, um, they're generally available up to um, 100 volts or so. For higher voltage applications and for uh, more power, their capacitor is made with a glass dielectric. Um, I've used them um, in some uh, mill spec design. Uh, but for the most part, what you'd use would, would be to, to use um, uh, NP0 um, ceramics or uh, scrounge around and try to find a specific uh, higher voltage, higher capacitance uh, 
um, silver mica and pay the price. So the NPOs are good enough then uh, uh, for stability of the way they manufacture them. Probably today's specs, they're they're good enough. Whereas years ago, when I was a lot more active than I am today, uh, the NPOs were cheap, dirt cheap, and but their tolerances were just oh gosh, ungoshly. You might look at one pico and be plus or minus twenty percent easily. Uh, at, at, at the one picofarad uh, level, and then, of course, your frequency determining device that I'd be using for that would be so far off, it was just unacceptable. Over. Yeah, the MP0s these days are uh, are much improved, and uh, a lot tighter tolerance is available. Uh, and if you want the ultimate, uh, you go to a chip capacitor where uh, with the same dielectric, but um, then, of course, there's the mounting problem. Roger that. Okay, thank you. I'm done with that question. Okay, George, you want to hop in somewhere? Well, I was just going to be moving us along a little bit, Joe, but I'm really interested, before we leave capacitors, to uh, understand the difference between uh, electrolytic and tantalum, when one should use the tantalums, which are more expensive and special in a certain way. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, generally uh, generally speaking, you can use a tantalum anywhere you'd use a, uh, an electrolytic. Um, in mill design, they're they're particularly useful and used quite a bit because they, um, they have less loss and a high capacitance and a given volume. They also have the advantage of longer life. Electrolytics can dry out after a while. And in fact, there have been some cases of some uh, poorly manufactured electrolytic caps uh, used in some computer power supplies where they haven't even lasted uh, a year. So. Quality problems aside, uh, electrolytics are, are good for general use. Um, you go to tantalums if you can afford them or if you have a source and you want uh, a capacitor that will be a good bypass or coupling um, higher in frequency than audio. Um, for the most part, uh, for hand use, uh, electrolytics are just fine. Okay, that's good. And uh, one last question, and then I'll take it over for toroids for a little bit to kick off that topic. And this is this is uh, a curiosity that's been with me. Uh, some some uh, electrolytics are indicated without polarity. What is it? How is it that an electrolytic capacitor cannot have a polarity at times? Okay, <laughs> they're used in audio applications for uh, um, when you want to pass uh, AC through. And what they do is they put uh, two electrolytic capacitors in there back. Um, positive to negative in series, so that you get half the capacitance, and uh, the the one that is reverse biased, so to speak, when uh, on one part of the cycle almost acts like a diode, and then uh, on the other half of the AC cycle, it acts uh, like a capacitor, and the uh, the first one acts like a diode. Um, apparently, it works pretty well. I've seen it done. Uh, and it is uh, fairly common. Um, seems a little against the laws of physics, but it seems to work. And very interesting. Um, uh, but, but, but what we're going to do, and, and I find this of such recurring interest to myself, that I'm going to summarize in one chart the pluses and minuses or um, uh, recommended usages of each of these different kinds of capacitors, and I'll put it back onto the whiteboard uh, after tonight. But you might want to look back at um, this whiteboard for later reference 
to get that kind of uh, quick and easy summary of capacitors, which to use with strengths and minuses of each. So um, I, I, I would like to do that, and I think you might be able to take advantage of that. Okay, let's move on to, uh, well, maybe, are there any further questions about uh, capacitors first? Uh, air variable uh, capacitors. Uh, I know you guys have used the small little uh, poly, poly polypropylene uh, type, and I was wondering, they're getting so expensive anymore. What do you guys do for that? Uh, just go into the, uh, the solid state uh, variable capacitor now, over? Well, we do... Um... We, they are also available, and I think I could point out uh, one source, uh, two sources. One is uh, Doug Hendricks um, at uh, QRP Kits um, offers these things like uh, five for 20 bucks or something like that. So, you know, $4 a piece is still pretty expensive. Um, I've also been getting some and uh, from Scott Gregson at... Um, Oh, uh, the shucks. He does the ZM2. Um, Joe, what's uh, Scott's uh, company? Company is Mtech, E-M-T-E-C-H. There you go, Mtech, E-M-C, Mtech. So um, um, that's, uh, that, that's at least a source for them. And as far as other methods that you were sort of alluding to, you know, the, um, the very caps don't offer usually as much of a swing as you can get with these polyvericons um, and uh, other air variables. So I think it's one of the things that are kind of on the, on the dying side. Joe, any comments there? Oh, I could, I could go on forever about uh, capacitors. Yeah, air variables are better. Um, they have higher voltage ratings and higher Q. Uh, but for a lot of uses, the um, polyvericons, the um, polystyrene capacitors, Variable polystyrenes are the best bet. Um, I try to scrounge them from old transistor radios when I can, or uh, if somebody has a special on them, uh, I'll buy 10 just so that I have them when I need them. Yeah, and uh, scrounging is always uh, an art form that never leaves us, and especially with some miniaturized circuits. You'll find these capacitors around. So check out old transistor radios, old um, scanners, uh, before some of the the uh, programmed uh, days at Hamfest, try to pick them up whenever you see them and build up your junk box. Um, also, I guess Nick too. I had gone through. I was the the head scrounger back in my neighborhood as a teen. Whenever a TV went out onto the onto the roadside for garbage, I was first to, to go pick them up before the garbage uh, the trash collectors came along to get them. And much to my dad's chagrin, I think um, our, our basement was a veritable junkyard of TV chassis and so on. And I did, I still also, just like you, still have clippings of silver micas from those days. I'm hopefully, they're hopefully be good by the time I ultimately get to them. But uh, nonetheless, that uh, scrounging is an art form that never seems to die away. Okay, let's get into toroid windings, um, toroids in general. I was able to get time to put up one chart that kind of we can talk to Toroids, of course, are very popular in our circuits because they offer a nice compact way of achieving a certain and predictable um, uh, inductance for filters, for resonant circuits, and, and, and so on. And uh, they're also very, because of the their orientation, their circular orientation, they have a contained magnetic field and a much better than open air type of uh, 
uh, coils that you might remember or recall seeing or think about as being in some of the boat anchors. So their uh, greater greater uh, inductance can be achieved and they're, they're sort of self-shielding in many ways. Today we've got uh, toroids that we um, that we get in different uh, sizes, as the chart indicates, uh, T37 for, you know, T44, T50 for half inch, T68 for uh, 0.68 inch. And the more, uh, the, the larger the diameter of the toroid, the more wind you can put on it, and, and hence the, the bigger the inductance. Now the inductance is a matter of how many turns you put along a toroid whose core has a certain permeability. And that permeability is, uh, uh, can be indicated as the A sub L column. And um, there you see the different range of permeability going from 6 up to 40. And if you want uh, a certain inductance, for example, let's just go um, 0.26 microhenries, um, you, would, uh, you would go to the certain, you would go to the specific row that had the permeability of the core that you have, and then go over to uh, the desired inductance, and you would see the specific number of windings that you would, or lengths um, that you would be needing to wind. So a chart like this is very helpful. And in the reference books, the QRP, uh, the data book for homebrewers and QRPers by Paul Harden, um, or Dick's book is uh, the electronics bench reference. Each of those have tables that represent nice uh, formulas and uh, nice charts that you can very quickly come to a given inductance for your uh, fruit toroid. Now, suppose you had a um, you know a, a project that specified that you would use a 0.37 or a T37 um, diameter type of uh, inductor um, a toroid and in order to get a certain amount of inductance. But you don't have any T37s, maybe you only have a T50. These are very common diameters, so a T50. Now T50 is, um, I guess they're gonna have the same permeability because it's the same material, I'm guessing there, Joe. But uh, the number of windings may differ. Um, Joe, can you comment on that and correct me right here? Certainly, yeah. Um... The, indeed, the permeability is the same for the different uh, core sizes, but since the, the uh, winding that each turn is larger in diameter, it encompasses more volume of the dielectric material. So the larger the toroid, the higher the inductance per, uh, per turn. Excellent. That's right. Some of the things that you, you think about, but you don't really think overtly about them, and that, that's exactly right. Um, another thing to really watch out for when it comes time for component selection or alternate component selection is the mix of the uh, uh, of, of the toroid. In simple terms, um, it's not shown necessarily on this table, but um, a, a, a certain frequency range would be indicated by a red, uh, a toroid being colored red, a mix of two. Another type of toroid with a higher frequency range would be a yellow. And I'm sure you've seen red toroids and yellow toroids and white toroids. And each of these have different frequency ranges that are pretty darn important to, to consider um, when using a substitute uh, um, toroid. So if you don't, in my simple example, if you don't have that T37, 
you can indeed go to T50, making sure that by definition it's going to have the same, uh, the same, uh, uh, the same permeability. Uh, the windings would change a little bit, as Joe just indicated, but it's got to be, at least for the application intended, you've got to take into consideration the mix, uh, the dash 2 or the dash 4 or dash 6 as uh, uh, the common ones we deal with. Because if you, diff if you use a different mix of the toroid, you're going to ultimately come up with a different uh, um, inductance. And mix-wise, it's a matter of frequency. So you might not get the frequency response if you're using a red mix or a, a, mix, uh, a dash 2 device at a higher frequency. Joe, I want to take over in the toroid, something we might have missed, at least in this brief broad stroke. I want to get to the schematic pretty soon. Sure. Yeah. Um, the one thing I wanted to mention, the, the lower um, uh, permeability toroids, um, for example, the, uh, the material types 1, 2, 6, and 10 are uh, ferrite powder material. It's a ferrite powder pressed into a toroidal core. They're generally good for RF um, in the frequency ranges indicated, but a little overlap. The, uh, the Q is optimized in the, uh, in the frequency ranges shown there. If you go to the higher permeable cores, uh, we have shown here the 61 and the 43, which are higher permeability. They're actually made from a ferrite material. Um, they're not as good for, uh, um, for use as uh, inductors in tuned circuits because they have much higher loss. And indeed, they also have um, um, higher temperature coefficient of uh, um, changing of uh, inductance. So they would drift like mad. Uh, where they're used generally is for wideband transformers and for uh, RF chokes where you need, uh, need a lot of inductance in a smaller package. That said, the material uh, 61 is used in bar form for uh, the ferrite loop antennas in AM radios. Although there the, uh, the uh, tuning is broad enough that the uh, um, poorer temperature stability doesn't really hurt anything. And there are plenty of other materials as well. This is a just a snapshot of some of the common ones we use as hams. Aha. Okay. Alan, do you have your... Uh, no, I guess he does not, but I see that he wrote a message. Uh, each were made with two identical cores. Okay, I'll read it uh, for the podcasters. Um, Alan, W2AEW, recently built a QRP wattmeter for a friend, and the directional coupler used two toroidal transformers. Each were made with two identical cores stacked together. Can you comment on why to prevent saturation? That's a good one, Joe. What's What do you think? Well, it's a couple things. Uh, it's to get in the uh, same footprint, the same volume, you can double the inductance. Uh, I forget whether it's doubling or quadruple the inductance by stacking two cores. But um, you can get a, a higher inductance in about the same footprint by doing that. In addition, um, you will uh, lessen the, the uh, flux density in the core so that uh, for higher power applications, you'd... Um, uh, lessen the, the possibility that the core would saturate. There's a third reason you could do it with different cores. And uh, indeed, uh, AQRP makes a uh, watt meter with, um, I believe it's a 43 mix and a 61 mix toroid stacked together. 
so they get better um, uh, wideband performance. Oh, that is amazing. That That's great to know. You know, something comes to mind. You and I did a project way back when, one of our first uh, uh, attempts at kitting and and a board, um, a receiver board design, the SOP, no, actually it was before that, the Fireball Transmitter. Do you remember that one, Joe, the Fireball? Absolutely. The Fireball 40. That had a a, a dash 2, a T37-2 um, toroid with a boatload of windings, and I could not fit them all around, but... I started overlapping the windings, and later on in my design days, I learned that that was not such a cool thing to do, at least not from a predictability or designability standpoint. However, now, if we had just stacked two of those red uh, T37-2s, we could have achieved the desired inductance without as many turns. Isn't that right? (laughs) Yeah. Uh, The older we get, the smarter we get, eh? (laughs) I guess so. All right. Um, any questions? Any any more questions on toroids before we move along? We're, we're only scratching the surface here, obviously, and it's a topic of discussion. And we really like this subject. We might come back to it again in future weeks uh, from time to time just to focus in on one particular class of these. But kind of overviewing things like this is kind of fun to us. Any questions on toroids? Yeah, John, go ahead. I'm wondering, can you substitute a small molded choke uh, of the, you know, a similar inductance for a toroid in a, in a, say, a receiver circuit? Depends on where in the circuit you want to do it. Um, the uh, if you're talking about the cylindrical um, inductors that look like um, they look like uh, big resistors, you know, they have lower Q, and indeed they might have poorer. Um, um, Temperature coefficient. Uh, so if you're if you're doing it in a filter uh, tune circuit that's uh, relatively broadband, you can do it. But uh, if you tried to do it in a VFO or something like that, you'd end up up with something that would drift quite a bit. Okay. Well, what about in a bad bandpass filter? Uh, depend on the design of it. If it's well, <laughs> it gets complicated. You could indeed probably get by with doing it. The only issue would be that if it were in a power handling um, application, uh, you might not be able to pass enough power through the inductor. The core loss might be too high, or the uh, series loss might be so high that it would overheat. Okay, great. Well, I'm just looking for a lazy man out. (laughs) Okay, good enough, uh, John. Uh, Nick, you had a quick one here. Yeah, I just would like to say, uh, guys, I, I really would love to see you guys talk more about the, te- the telroids. I can't even say the darn things right. Uh, pre- predominantly because I think they're they're a great device. Uh, they're a bit of a mystery for me, I'll have to really admit. Uh, and I'd like to know, is it possible to use telroid windings in place of the older-fashioned IF-type cans? Or the the IF cans that you have a hard time getting a hold of at times, or at least was I can't find them. Uh, I usually kind of uh, keep it specified to what I can so unfortunately scrounge out of radios or whatever I can get my hands on to. But is it possible to uh, use the telroids as a replacement of an IF can type uh, transformer? Over. Well, oftentimes the toroid cans, or, or the, I'm sorry, the, um, uh, the inductance 
in the cans that you're the IF cans you're talking about offer two challenges to the use of torage. One is adjustability. So oftentimes there's a slug in there and um, that's that's a hard thing to do to provide with uh, um, the toroids because they again the self-shielding nature of it uh, makes it a difficult thing to tune as compared to a, a linear air core or um, uh, a, um, an inductor with a ferrous slug that goes through it. Number two is that oftentimes those IF cans are transformers. Um, they have taps and different windings around a common core so while that could be done with a transformer, you'd end up with a pretty fixed and maybe not as easy to build uh, uh, transformer. And the other thing to take into consideration, of course, is the inductance. Um, offhand, I don't know what the inductance might be in a, in a standard uh, uh, IF 9.2 IF 9.2 megahertz uh, or 9, 9 megahertz IF can, um, but it might be difficult to achieve with a uh, with a toroid, Joe. Yeah, um, I think uh, what Nick's talking about is more like the 455 kilohertz IFs. Indeed, um, um, if you can't find something from Mauser that uh, might do the job for you, you quite possibly could use a toroid. Um, uh, off the top of my head, um, the 455 kilohertz IF cans, I believe, have an inductance of something like half a millihenry. So you could use one of the Dash 43 toroids to do that. Um, probably a little bit larger, and you'd need to have a variable capacitor to tune it. The way I would approach it would be that I would use a um, one of the uh, hyper-abrupt um, um, capacitors, the uh, Vericaps voltage variable capacitors, to tune it. And um, you could probably um, probably uh, do something that way. Would take a little bit of work, but it's a possibility. Yeah, what you okay. want to do. What you want to do here too, Nick and everybody, is uh, you know to take some of the mystery out of the toroids. You know you can find uh, you do two things. One is just as we did with the resistors and the capacitors, go to your good friends at, at Amadon, or better yet, go to uh, Diz at kitsandparts.com, uh, whose material we're you know, we're showing here on the website uh, quite a bit, and his his address is there too someplace. Um, they have a wonderful selection of toroids and just buy yourself a small handful of every kind that, well, not every kind because there are a lot in there, but um, of the popular ones, uh, the red mix, yellow mix uh, are the by far the, the more popular ones. Get some binocular cores. Um, I'm sure you've heard of those if you, if you have the Ensemble, uh, Soft Rock Ensemble and some other popular kits. You'll see them used um, binocular cores for transformers as well as just uh, straight inductors. So get yourself some of those and then uh, some number 28 and number number 26 wire, number 28 wire, and number 30 wire. And you'll be set to make any kind of inductor for just about any kind of inductance that you might have a need for. And, uh, you know, in general, just hitting the, the inductance target is, is usually the goal. But if you take care to use the right... Uh, formulas that you would get from the, the second point of my comment here is get the darn book. Get those data books. Or once again, go to Diz's site, kitsandparts.com, and you'll see that there's a wonderful uh, toroid winding calculator. So all you need to do is select what kind of uh, inductor that you have, and then uh, what the desired inductance is, and it will tell you the number of windings to put on. And windings are not that bad. They're not that hard to, to put on there. Um, 
it's uh, your your fingers get numb to it, but it, it's an easy thing to do, and you can whip those things off uh, uh, pretty easily. What I'd like to do is to move to our last section for tonight, which is not the schematics. We're going to save the schematics for another night, Joe. I hope you don't mind. But I'd like to go through the semiconductors. Again, from kitsandparts.com website, we have a listing of popular, and I mean really popular, semiconductors. Um, I'm going to turn it over to Joe here in a minute, but I'm looking down here, and I can think of a circuit or a project for every single one of those parts I see there. And maybe that would be kind of a fun thing to do, Joe, if, uh, between the two of us and maybe some of the uh, attendees here. We could kind of list a project that uses some of these components. And you might be able to see how the component is, component is used. And uh, just off the top of my head, I see a diode there. The 1N5711. It's a Schottky signal diode. Um, question I've been meaning to ask for such a long time, kind of along the basic line, Joe. And... Uh, is why the heck are there so many different variants of diodes? Now, obviously, we see some power handling variances and so on, but we see some Schottky diodes, not in this list here, but I mean, we know that they are in existence, Schottky diodes, uh, germanium diodes, um, and of course, silicon diodes. And there's diodes in small form factor packages, and there's big diodes with power handling capabilities, and there's Diodes with uh, variable capacitance based on the kind of voltage you applied on there. So, um, in general, can you kind of comment on the plethora of diodes that we have? Shucks, I think you're answering your own question, George. Yeah, there are. Uh, oh, there's a whole spectrum of diodes for various purposes. Uh, generally speaking, the, the difference is the, uh, the internal construction of them. Um, the older days, they used to use uh, germanium because it was easy to make diodes. Um, they used a point contact uh, type construction, which was almost like the cat's whisker, where they had a chunk of uh, germanium and uh, a little finger of wire touched down on it. And um, at least for the, for the uh, point contact diodes, they sent a little current through, which welded the wire onto the, uh, onto the uh, germanium material. And it, it formed, a, uh, formed a junction there. Uh, germaniums were some of the original diodes, easy to make, um, had fairly good high frequency performance, but um, they tended to be leaky. They, uh, they had a very low reverse resistance, um, so they weren't as good. Silicon diodes came along where, where there were more sophisticated manufacturing techniques, and uh, then they were tailored in a number of different uh, configurations for um, you know, big fat ones for power, uh, smaller ones with low capacitance for high frequency use, and um, different doping to give them other characteristics, such as a Zener diode, which is a reverse breakdown diode that uh, has a properly controlled doping in there, where um, when you pass a given current through, it tries to maintain a constant voltage. And other diodes, such as the, uh, the voltage variable caps, the so-called rare caps have a, a junction width in there that's carefully controlled so that the the width of the, the PN junction, when it's reverse biased, varies in thickness um, according to the applied voltage. So it's like uh, moving plates of a capacitor together and apart so that you can tune them like that. There are a number of other diodes, but uh, those are the main things. 
Um, the exact doping profile determines the um, type of use it's used for, and um, the size and the thickness and the heft of it has to do with the uh, voltage rating and the power handling capability. So that's basically it for diodes. Uh, and even, even within, um, uh, for example, Schottky diodes, there are gradations of uh, um, forward voltage drop and uh, capacitance so that they're tailored for different applications. Uh, back to you, George. Shamu, I love it. <laughs> Sometimes our audio does come across that way, doesn't it? Shamu, the, uh, uh, what is it, the killer whale? Or and then whatever the i don't know if you had mentioned it joe but um uh, the pin diode the pin diode and there's a couple of them listed here you and i have an upcoming episode that we are preparing for that's talking about electronic switching which which of course has pin diodes as an integral part of uh of uh, the techniques there can you comment on the pin diode sure uh indeed that's uh, another example of a different structure the pin stands for P-I-N, where P is positive dope material, N is negative dope material. They're normally, uh, cheek by gel, they're normally right next to each other. But in the P-I-N diode, there's what's called intrinsic or undoped material between the, the two, um, two parts of the diode. What this does is when you forward bias it, um, not to get too, uh, too long-winded and technical here, but the idea is when you forward bias it, um, the uh, electrons flowing through the, the um, intrinsic material are rather slow. So that the net effect is when you forward bias it and you pass RF through there, uh, in a normal diode, the electron holes, electrons and holes recombine very quickly. But in a PIN diode, the, the carrier lifetime is so long that um, the diode stays turned on uh, and it will conduct in both directions for RF um, so that you can use it as a switch by turning on and off the DC bias. The other thing you can do with it is to vary the amount of DC bias, the bias current. You can affect the, uh, the width of the junction there so that you can have it uh, used as a, a variable RF uh, resistor or a, uh, uh, a switch or a, kind of like an RF uh, rheostat. Perfect. Now, and transistors. Um, there was a transistor that Heathkit used many, uh, very often, of course, way back when. It was an MOS something or other that was very, it was a good performer. It was kind of static sensitive, as I recall, and but you can no longer get it. And there are some projects that I've run across that call for that. Um, what can we use in its place? The typical is 2N7000, or um, there's one that we use in the Rainbow Tuner. Um, I forgot what that one is, but first of all, can you remember the transistor that I'm trying to uh, recall, and then what can we use to replace it? Um, as I recall, it was the... Uh... It was in the SB303. I think I lived in, in several lifetimes inside that circuit back when I was uh, when I had that, that receiver, and it was a 4 pin device it was a four four leaded uh, device in a can it looks something like the 2n5109 pictured here on the on the whiteboard but there's a mosfet and i just can't remember but anyways a popular um fet in use today is the 2n7000 can you uh, comment on its ubiquity 
Yeah, let me go back to the dual-gate MOSFET. Not sure what the Motorola one was, but the popular RCA one was a 40673. That's it. 2N, uh, I forget, uh, 3N100. I'll give you a couple of them, George. But there are some, there's a British manufacturer who makes a, off the top of my head, I don't exactly remember the number, but it's uh, something like a, a BF92, which is in a little different package, but uh, very similar electrically. I just saw its use uh, discussed on, uh, I believe, the GQRP uh, list. Um, now, what do you want me to talk about next? Well, just in general, the... Uh... Uh, the ubiquity, how often and how pervasive we can use the 2N7000, particularly as a switch. I use them a, a boatload in as uh, switches coming from microcontrollers. Um, in the past, we used to use bipolars in the, to you know uh, provide uh, uh, switching capability for external circuits, maybe relays or LEDs. But today we can use uh, 2N7000 pretty easily just by connecting its gate to the uh, uh, to the microcontroller, maybe at most with a, a one mega ohm resistor from the gate to ground. Oh yeah, two and seven thousand is a goodie. The one we used in the um, Rainbow Tuner was the VN10K, um, made by Siliconics originally. The beauty of the um, single gate MOSFETs is that they're they're so-called enhancement mode devices. They are um, um, they're basically off until you forward bias the, uh, the, the uh, I'm sorry, until you apply a positive bias to the gate. It's still, um, still got a very high impedance, but if you apply a five volt uh, signal to the gate, it turns on the, um, the source to drain, um, the cathode to plate uh, circuit, if you will, with a very low resistance of 10 ohms or so. So they're extremely good for switches. Um, they're a little high capacitance. They're not great for RF, although uh, Steve Weber, among others, have paralleled them and used um, multiples of them for uh, switching mode uh, transistors in uh, RF power amps at HF. Very good, very handy. Um, um, and they have the beauty that all you have to do is apply a, a very low current voltage to turn them on and they have a uh, low on resistance. Whereas a uh, bipolar transistor would have a low impedance and uh, wouldn't have as much uh, gain. You'd have to apply more soup to them and uh, supply a fair amount of current to turn them on to have equivalent uh, uh, on resistance. Very handy transistor and dirt cheap. Indeed, one of those that you want to uh, buy a, a good big handful of because you can use it in so many applications. In fact, Every one of these devices on this uh, in our semiconductor section is probably a pretty darn handy device to get. They're relatively inexpensive. For example, a 2N7000, 25 for 350. The BS170 is is used very very often in uh, the soft rocks. The J310s uh, likewise. Um, I'm looking at uh, of course the the good old standby. Uh, PNP uh, 2N3906, and there should be, there it is right right in front of it, so uh, logically, the uh, 2N3904, which is an NPN. Um, and I don't know anybody who doesn't have any PN2222As and, and who cannot use more of them, so that would be another good one to get. I see the uh, the 2N5109, we use that RF uh, 
amplifier transistor in the um, oh back in the Fireball 40 days, a Fireball 40 transmitter that we did for the New Jersey QRP. We did a Fireball amp, an FB40 amp, and I bought a whole bunch of the 2N5109s and I still have some left, but nonetheless, that was a great performer to give us about, uh, oh, Joe, what was that about? Uh, was that a one one watt output? No, it had to be more than that. Yeah, I think if you push them, you get a couple watts out of them. Very good broadband transformer. They were designed for cable TV uh, broadband amps. Yeah, good broadband transmitter, uh, trans, uh, transistor. Here's a one that we might start wrapping up with. Um, the... Uh, I'm intrigued by the um, some of the RF power transistors that we, we have available to us. And I see some in certain designs tend to pop more often than not. Yet uh, the Penny Whistle, for example, is a nice, very solid uh, um, RF power amp transistor. Uh, to be honest, at the moment, I can't recall which one the RD16HHF1 is that we have pictured here. Two for ten bucks. Again, this is all from Diz, um, kitsandparts.com, great site. Um, so out of the, uh, can you comment on, on, on that RD16HHF1? Uh, and also, what are some of the parameters that differentiate the RF power amplifiers, um, power transistors from each other? You got an hour or so? Yeah, <laughs> that is a, a topic that's always intrigued me as well. Yeah, um, this... Uh, it has been a uh, real boon to uh, electronic design when uh, MOSFETs, uh, MOS, uh, FET, field effect transistors, were able to be used for RF because they tend to be very rugged. Um, they don't suffer the um, thermal runaway problems that uh, um, bipolar transistors did. And um, they have a very high input impedance uh, primarily just the capacitance. So the RF MOSFETs are very very husky uh, RF power transistors that don't tend to pop. Uh, they don't take much drive. And um, if you do a little bit of uh, careful uh, adjustment in the design, they, uh, they're pretty robust and uh, don't self-destruct if, if uh, the SWR goes a little high. Basically, they're small junction, um, fairly um, uh, fairly large uh, devices um, with uh, uh, characteristics that give them low input capacitance and low uh, input to output capacitance, so they can operate at high frequencies and then have low uh, turn on resistance, so that they don't have much loss when you're uh, conducting um, when you turn them on to conduct. So they make ideal, um, uh, they're actually more like switches than amplifiers. They do a very good job for our power amps. And uh, they're getting cheaper now to the point where it's cheaper to buy a good uh, RF MOSFET than it is to buy an equivalent uh, bipolar RF power transistor. Um, it's the way industry is going for sure. Oh, uh, you bet. You bet. Um, we're going to start wrapping it up uh, right about now. Does anybody have any last questions, at least for now, about the semiconductors, maybe those that are pictured here, or maybe something that triggered a question in your mind about a particular part you have or that you've tried to use in the past? 
Uh, on the list here, uh, a couple of uh, you know, some of the real popular kind of RF-ish type of uh, devices like uh, 1N34A, uh, 1N914, and uh, 4148. Um, would you consider those devices kind of as popular as as popular and as important as some of the other, you know, like diodes that you've got listed here. I mean, they're not varactors, but they're just kind of small signal, sig small signal signal diodes. But um, just wondering uh, how you'd rate rank those in terms of importance for the QRPers uh, uh, bucketed kitty, so to speak. Absolutely important and uh, very very popular. Um, frankly, what we did, we just we we took the uh, the parts that Diz had listed in this little section. Something that kind of came to mind, it's a it's a large effort. I think, you know, several hams have done it and over the years. Kind of like your, your bare minimum of useful, valuable parts to have in your ham, um, you know, junk box and so on. And I might give a shot at that if I can't find an equivalent on the, on the website, on, on the Internet. But um, in that list would certainly be the 1N4148, um, which, of course, is a small signal transit, uh, a small signal diode. It's great for switching, and it's, it's it's great for protection of your die of your relays um, um, when uh, um, to protect uh, the transistors that are switching to relays on and off. Great for do low level um, uh, simple RF detectors and where you need simple rectification. The one in thirty four A is a very very um, useful diode in certain applications. Uh, being germanium, and it's going to have a, a much lower, uh, uh, much lower than normal uh, junction voltage, and it's useful in receivers um, and uh, the front ends of, of some simple uh, crystal types of uh, of receivers. So these these are certainly components that ought to be on a um, the, the most important list, the top 100 parts you ought to have in junk box, and that might be kind of a fun project to do and. And maintain going on. Did you mention another one there, Alan? Just uh, I didn't want to miss one of your uh, parts. No, yeah, the other one I guess is the one N nine fourteen A, but I guess that's very similar to the forty one forty eight. But uh, okay, I didn't know if they were omitted on purpose or just uh, you, you had to cut the list off somewhere. No, yeah, definitely the the nine fourteen is very similar to the forty one forty eight. Um, in fact, interchangeable for all the most of the applications that we deal with. And the list here was just grabbed from Diz's uh, website, and it wasn't a matter of uh, prioritization or not. But I think I would like to do that, and I don't know if anybody think that would be interesting. But um, the top 100 parts to have in your uh, in your junk box, and this this list would be the, a good start to it. Other uh, other questions before we wrap for uh, this evening? Yeah, Pete, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, with uh, uncounted quantities of old computer stuff around motherboards, option boards, and so forth, it would be wonderful if people made an effort, especially the clubs or something, made an effort to come up with projects that could be built using the parts from these old computer boards. Now, I've removed a lot of parts from old computer boards, but it's been simple stuff like uh, 3.5 millimeter jacks and, and individual electrolytics and all that kind of thing. But uh, if somebody could figure out what's on those things that are not, not quite as obvious and come up with parts, uh, with, with uh, projects that could be built out of those, I think that'd be a wonderful asset. That's kind of an interesting thing, Pete. Uh, there's been a contest or two over the years, maybe at Dayton, the FDIM, Build-A-Thon, or uh, some kind of a venue like that, 
that did just what you suggested, taken an old computer board, and they might have you know gotten like 50 of them, and hand it out to people and see what could be made with the parts that are on it. Um, it's a it's a make a, a fun type of project. And uh, if I find any particular links or projects that were around that, um, I'll, I'll be sure to let you know and post it here on on the website. The um, the material that we talked about here this evening just flew right by, and we're going to wrap it instead of taking it to the two hour limit like last week. Um, and um, this has given me the idea, and I've had some out-of-band types of comments uh, already this evening that say, hey, let's, like, uh, I forgot who it was, Nick said, let's talk more about toroids. So we're going to take a couple of topics in the future, not necessarily next week, but in the future, occasionally we're going to take a topic like uh, toroids and microcontrollers, and we're going to drill down into those and have good comparison types of uh, charts and discussion, tips and tools for... Um, how to easily use those components or figure out what values they are or what values you want them to be. And uh, it'll be a little bit deeper than this discussion. This seemed to fly by so fast. I think that we're just kind of glossing over everything. But maybe I'm hoping, we're hoping, that it's given you some ideas for um, maybe some of the components that we did talk about and maybe a little bit of uh, confidence in going and grabbing a part and grabbing uh, maybe not the same part, but... Uh, using it in a way that you um, wasn't originally specified. I can't tell you, there's there's a, and I won't name names, but a couple of uh, guys call me, not from this group, but, other, you know, local club, and they sort of ask, uh, you know, can I use this or that? And the answer is somewhat obvious, um, at least to me and hopefully to us here, but I guess I would urge you to look at the specs. And it's really simple to grab a spec sheet on any of these parts that you've seen here in the semiconductors, or the toroids, and especially so if you have those data books that we mentioned, um, and uh, look up the part, and you'll see some of the important characteristics. And if you do the same for the part that you're trying to replace, you can see where it differs. And you know if uh, the part you're trying to replace, for example, simple example, has a uh, one watt requirement, and all you have is a two watt resistor instead of the one watt resistor. The answer should be quite obvious that, sure, you can probably, with great confidence, use a, a 2-watt resistor in place of the 1-watt resistor that was called out in the in the part spec. Now, that's a simple example, but by the way, that was, an, that was a real example that somebody asked me about. So, you know, look at the specs, a little more common sense, and uh, if you have a question along the way, ask us. Post it on the chat with the designers uh, list on the Yahoo groups. Or write to Joe and or me uh, with a question. We'd be glad to help you out. In fact, we'd be tickled that uh, that you were kind of stimulated by the uh, discussion here on the show. So um, um, I wanted to mention that, um, let's see, two things. First of all, I wanted to mention just a little bit more about the electronic data book. Uh, Dick and, uh, and Bill have made it available, uh, made us, made it, uh, have made it possible for me to get a bunch of these books um, at a slight price reduction, and uh, that's what Bill's comment on the on the uh, the text portion of the client here was about. And if you are tuned in here tonight, and um, because there's only a limited number of books that we have, we can't really offer this all to the podcast listeners as well, unless there's extra books, and we'll let you know. 
Um, but if you're tuned in here tonight, you'll be able to get a slight discount on the Electronics Bench reference. Very much, uh, very much, and thankful, uh, thankful to uh, to Dick. Ugh, I keep forgetting Dick's last name, and and Bill for doing that. So um, Dick Torme, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, is uh, generously um, getting this book available to us at a slight discount. And if you don't have it, it's a wonderful book to have. We have questions into Paul Harden, NA5N as well, but I haven't been able to catch up with him. Um, maybe we'll be able to swing a similar deal for that. So that's it for the books. And the last piece of news that I wanted to, to kind of update you on, I've been receiving a ton of, of uh, questions and interest in the GPS modules that we talked about in the previous uh, weeks. So I um, wanted to give you a bit of an update on the game plan for that. If you're interested in... Uh, Getting one of those uh, nifty difty U-Blocks 6, U-B-L-O-X-6 um, GPS module. And that was uh, that, that is being arranged by our, our good friend here, JJ, uh, Joe Jessen, KC2VGL, right here in the list tonight. And we're working out a deal where Joe, um, JJ, and Joe Everhart and N2CX and myself, the three of us, are working up a, um, a small, inexpensive eval board, a little PCB that's going to go along with this module. Because frankly, when you if you've looked at the data specs, the the U-Block Six is a difficult chip to uh, uh, to homebrew onto onto a board because it's got a very unusual and small form factor for the uh, um, uh, for the package. So we figured that we'd put together a small eval evaluation board that we can put out with uh, with the module. And that will enable you to uh, attach the, uh, the, the the GPS module and uh, add some standard stuff, you know, like power supply regulator and and what connectors and whatnot. And you'll be uh, able to kind of do some experimenting with the GPS module. I have one here, and I've been playing with it for the last uh, week and a half or so, and I am just tickled. I am enthralled with it. I put the uh, the GPS antenna up on the side of the house, drilled a hole through my basement, if you heard me talk about that in past weeks, and to have it coming in here to an always-on board containing the U-Blocks uh, chip. I have a second small dedicated embedded micro uh, embedded uh, Windows computer, you know, something that stays on with no fan and no peripherals. All I have is a, is a display, and I display the very comprehensive U-Blocks control panel. It's an application that displays all sorts of charts and graphs about the data coming in. And I'll tell you, the accuracy here coming out of that one module obviates the need in most applications for any kind of GPS disciplining. You might have seen that in previous uh, other projects. So this is a really good uh, state-of-the-art, leading-edge type of component. And once again, everybody here in the chat with the designers will have an opportunity to get this first, um, the module and uh, the board, before we run out of supplies. So um, keep staying tuned to chat with the designers' uh, web page or uh, list. And, uh, and I'm going to get a project page up for each of our projects, including the GPS module. And we'll... Uh, uh, have some good times uh, experimenting with that. So um, we're about to wrap it up for tonight. Uh, Joe, do you have any final comments that you'd like to make to the group here? No, man. Uh, this this time went like bad. Uh, very rapid uh, thing. We we do intend next week to uh, uh, discuss the uh, schematics that were at the end of the um, 
uh, end of the whiteboard. We'll go through them in some detail. And I think we also uh, want to try to gather a little more comprehensive information presented on uh, resistors, hopefully to the level of detail we did with the capacitors. Um, sorry we couldn't get enough uh, this week, but it uh, gives us Christopher the middle next week. Thank you all, thank you all for your interest, your questions, and um, we'll, um, we'll do more uh, next week. Oh, very good, and that's a great idea. Well, let's analyze the, uh, the components in there, and I'll together we'll, we'll scrape together additional information, maybe even a start, Alan, at the, uh, the top 100 best parts to have in your junk box. That might be a, a really uh, interesting, this might be a really interesting page, whiteboard, to continue augmenting and, and kind of filling out. We'll have our own little data book by the time we're done with things. All right, uh, final questions from anybody before we wrap it up tonight. Yeah, I got a very quick question about time zones, if I may, please. Sure, go ahead, John. Uh, right. Um, uh, several times I've come in late, uh, although I've looked it up on the internet. Uh, it could be that um, uh, a daylight saving is uh, mucking up the calculations. At the moment in New Zealand, it's uh, 1.30 p.m. in the afternoon. What time is it there, please? Right now it's 9.30, 9.30 p.m. Uh, East Coast U.S. time. Oh, okay, that'll give me some guideline to uh, be on time. Thank you. So thanks a lot for joining us here, um, uh, John. I really appreciate you, you, know, you hopping in, and, and we'll make sure that we get those time zones straightened out for you. So thanks for joining us tonight. We'll chat with the designers. These are your hosts, George N2APB, that's me, and Joe N2CX. Thank you, everybody, for attending and uh, once again making this a really interesting evening. Good material. And uh, get back to us if you've got some material to contribute, you'd like to see some topics covered, corrections to what we've been doing, or otherwise a contribution to the, uh, to the effort, we'd certainly appreciate that. Good night, all.